All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called Emission. And Emission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit technipfmc.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for oil and gas upstream research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE about a year ago and founded a small consultancy and became a podcast host. Before I introduce our guest, I want to thank Technique FMC for sponsoring this podcast. And I want to ask you to do me a big favor by answering a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds, and the link is in the show notes. In return, we will happily send you some stickers for your laptop or your hard hat or your friends. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Jennifer Miskimmons. Jennifer, thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dr. Miskimmons has an impressive set of credentials. She's a petroleum engineer, having earned her bachelor's, master's, and PhD all in petroleum engineering, bachelor's at Montana College of Mineral Science and Technology, and both her master's and PhD at Colorado School of Mines. She's a registered professional engineer in the state of Colorado, and currently she's the department head and professor at Colorado School of Mines. She holds the F.H. Mick Morelli Simrix Energy Distinguished Department, Hair, department Head Chair. She's the director of the Fracturing Acidizing, Acidizing Stimulation Technology FAST FAST Consortium and the director of the Center for Earth Minerals Mechanics and Characterization, CEMMC. Before that, she was a consultant for three years, and before that, she was in production operations for Marathon Oil Company for seven years. She's written a book and two book chapters and over 40 peer-reviewed journals and proceedings. Uh, she's served almost 40 years um, providing volunteer service to SPE and other professional societies. She's mentored and advised many students over almost 90 students at the Colorado School of Mines in PhD and master's programs. And now she's the program chair for the 2023 SPE Hydraulic Fracturing Conference to be held in Denver in June. Welcome again, Dr. Ms. Kimmins. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great, thank you. So, so Jennifer, tell us, how did you get into the oil and gas business? Well, it's, it's a... It's a rather unique story, I think, probably. Um, I jokingly say I got into petroleum engineering from a volleyball scholarship. Um, I 
never really heard of petroleum engineering when I was in high school. Um, came from a small town in Wyoming. You'd think I'd know a little bit about petroleum coming from Wyoming, but uh, really didn't have much of a background in it. And um, I had an opportunity to go to Montana Tech, um, play volleyball. And when I was there, I had an opportunity to get an internship with Marathon Oil Company um, and uh, kind of fell in love with it. So ended up getting my bachelor's in petroleum. And as you said, kind of just kept going um, with a master's and a PhD in that particular area. So probably a little bit of a unique way to get into it. Um, obviously, once I once I got the internship, once I started taking classes and, and whatnot, I started to really enjoy the, the technology too, not just the reason that I got there, so. Right, right. And so like, where did you work? Um, you know, what fields, what? Yeah, so I um, when I was an intern, um, I got a chance to work in uh, Cody, Wyoming. And so Cody's a, a great place to um, live and work. I was pretty lucky in the sense that uh, it's right outside Yellowstone National Park. It's about 50 miles outside. And um, I worked in the, uh, as an intern, I worked in the Bighorn Basin um, area up there. I worked several fields. Um, in Oregon Basin is a, a big one up in that area. Um, and eventually I started my career for Marathon, <coughs> excuse me, in the same area and worked in um, Grass Creek and um, some other areas too. Oh, there was also a field called Pitchfork, which was a, a really nice place to, to work too because it was right up against the base of the mountains. So so it was a nice place to kind of kind of break out and, and start working in my career there. Excellent, excellent. So um, when I was with the Department of Energy, my my interim job before you know directorship, I was in the field in Bakersfield, California, at Elk Hills. Uh, before that, Getty Oil Company. But you know, long story. But the story is about you today. Um, but what I wanted to share was that I was um, the project manager or program manager for Teapot Dome, and that was so exciting to go there. Did you ever get a chance to go up there? I did. Um, I I never worked the field, but I've seen a lot of um, uh, reports and and uh, experiments that kind of came out of the area. I've driven I've driven through the field um, before. It's it's incredibly textbook geology from the surface side of things. So it was kind of fun to think about when that was uh, actually you know discovered and explored in in that particular area so yeah so i've been i've been through it never really um you know spent much technical time i would say in it but uh um it's still it's a it's, place not a lot of people get to see and uh, no no a lot of people don't a lot of people hear about it though because of of the the work the that's been done there right right and of course before then about the big scandal so i don't want to ignore yes. that but that, that's yes. the truth and we learn about truth here so, um, so one of the things that um, we we see um, our audience is not all uh, subject matter experts in upstream, well, in petroleum engineering, in oil and gas sector, and we are grateful that they you know stop by and listen in. And but I do like to connect things for them um, uh, with respect to upstream. You know, like what is upstream, and you know what are you seeing in some of the trends. And of course, as an educator, I mean, I'm sure that that is something that you. Uh, you have many thoughts about, um, and, and you know maybe you want to share some of that with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're right. I, I actually spend a lot of time talking with potential students about this, 
um, and, and their parents for that matter, um, just because they obviously want to know a little bit about what their children are getting into. Um, you know, when I, when I talk about upstream, uh, w what I tell them is, because uh, a lot of people assume petroleum engineering, they, they think about refineries or, or they think about, uh, you know, gasoline that goes into their car and that. Um, that's not really what petroleum engineering in a in an upstream sense is, at least, at least to me, and I think a lot of people would agree. Um, but upstream, we're really looking at the actual production of hydrocarbons out of the ground, right? So we're looking at... Um, drilling the wells. We're looking at producing those wells. We're looking at managing the reservoir so that uh, we we maximize the recovery from it. That's what a lot of people don't understand. Um, I think in in general is the oil's not just down there in a big cavern, right? It's it's actually entrained in the rock, and we have to work really hard for every percentage of uh, that hydrocarbon that comes out of of the well. So that's what I, I tell a lot of folks is, you know, upstream is, and what petroleum engineering is, is we're really the ones that, that drill the wells, manage the wells, manage the actual reservoirs, and produce those to the surface and get them in a pipeline. Once we get those hydrocarbons, oil, natural gas, that kind of thing into a pipeline, and it heads down the road, um, that's where we're getting more into what's known as midstream, which is uh, the transportation areas. Um, it's really hard sometimes to define a really hard stop between midstream and, and upstream. Um, but, uh, that's, you know, that, that's kind of the general direction, I guess, that, um, I tend to go with it. And share some of the differences between conventional and unconventional, you know, subject matter expert as you are, just a few features for, you know, you know, people who are generalists in the energy sector. Yeah, so conventional and unconventional, um... The term unconventional, I think, probably started to hit a little bit, maybe 20, 25 years or so ago. Um, if you look at the, the technical definition uh, that SPE and, and things like the SEC put out and everything, it's pages of, of technical definition. But really what we're looking at from a conventional and unconventional is... Um, levels of ability to produce and and what i mean by that is conventional reservoirs have pretty high permeabilities or relatively high permeabilities and permeability is just the ability of those fluids to flow through the rock um it flows easier it's a little bit easier to produce because of that and those are the type of reservoirs that we as human beings really have been producing since the late 1800s. Unconventional reservoirs, they take uh, their lower permeability and, and, and in certain situations they're extremely low permeability, which means that we need to help those fluids flow in some manner um, to make the flow rates economic. And those techniques can be like um, heating, heating the oil up. Some of, some of the oil we produce is, is like peanut butter in the ground. And um, if we heat it up, if we steam flood it, um, makes it easier to flow. Just like you put something on the, the stove, it makes it easier to flow. And um, 
that's a that's an unconventional reservoir type of system. Um, my particular area that I work in is we hydraulically fracture um, the reservoirs, and something that a lot of people don't necessarily understand. We we hydraulically fracture conventional reservoirs also. Um, but unconventionals have become associated with hydraulic fracturing so much because to make them flow at economic rates, uh, we have to apply hydraulic fracturing frequently in, in some of those systems. So it's, it's really unconventional versus conventional. It's a level of flow capacity and, and permeability, but it's also a need to apply specialized techniques in the unconventional world. Absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing I like to share with um, people about, about reservoirs in general is that um, we get the oil and gas to, and water to come up to the surface as a function of pressure differential. And that pressure is uh, kind of like when you go into the deep end of the pool and you, and you feel that pressure on your ears, it's the weight of the fluid above you and like that. And when you go into the shallow, there's just less force, if you will. And so that difference is uh, how we get the oil and gas out of the, um, out of the reservoir under primary recovery. And so it's uh, a function of how easily the rock will let the fluids flow, as you said, both um, the permeability um, as well as um, the, the uh, character of the oil itself. If it's too peanut buttery, I love that analogy, if it's too thick, um, then there'll be issues there. So it's the same pressure in unconventional reservoirs. Um, and uh, the difference is, is that the permeability means that you lose a lot of that effectiveness of the pressure. And so by breaking up the rock and, and uh, creating more um, uh, paths to flow, then that pressure that you've got um, I'm hoping I'm saying everything correctly here as an educator, <laughs> as a master of her craft. <laughs> you, absolutely, 100%. Um, yeah, no, you know, that's, that's, that really is what hydraulic fracturing is, is, is we're just cracking the rock to put a, a higher permeable channel or, or a highway, if you will, out into the reservoir and out into that rock to allow those fluids to flow a little bit easier back to the wellbore. Um, than they would if if we didn't do it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and you've published a lot of papers and, of course, a book. I, I wrote one chapter for one book, and it almost killed me. That's a lot of work. I'm so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> that you've written a whole book. <laughs> well, I, so, so fortunately, like, like the situation you were in, I, I had a bunch of co-authors on the different chapters, so, so that did help. But I will say, somebody asked me, they said, when are you writing your next book? And I said, not in this lifetime. <laughs> once, once, once is enough, I, it just made me appreciate, you know, authors that much, that much more. Um, definitely a labor of love. Absolutely. So. Um, but the reason I raised that was, um, what mm -hmm. are some of the things about hydraulic fracturing in terms of new techniques or new understandings? I mean, what's some of the cutting edge here for... Um, it, that's your area of expertise. And so, you know, even petroleum engineers are not experts in everything subsurface. Mm -hmm. So give us a sense of that. Yeah. So the, the areas that we're seeing and, and probably the cutting edge at this point in time is improvement in what we refer to as diagnostics. 
Um, and just like the name sounds, you know, like your, your doctor diagnoses a, a cold or what, whatnot, right? Uh, what we're trying to do with diagnostics is to diagnose uh, some information about the, the fracturing treatment or the well. And one of the biggest uh, opportunities or changes that we've seen probably in the last 10 years, which sounds like a long time, but it takes time for that technology to get to a point where we really start to understand it, is uh, fiber optics. And so fiber optics is... Quite simply, it's it, fiber optics is just running the fiber cable like like you have in your house for internet. It's running that fiber down into our wells, and our wells, ex especially in some of our horizontal wells or our shale plays, they might be eight thousand foot deep and another ten thousand foot in lateral length. So so the total wellbore goes down 8,000 feet and then it turns 90 degrees and runs horizontal for another 10,000 feet. We've got these, we've got this 18,000 feet or, or some wells are 25,000 feet that we can now see a lot more about with fiber. Fiber gives us measurements every few feet along those wellbores. So the best way I can describe it is instead of taking one temperature gauge and putting it in the center of a room and assuming that all the room is that same temperature, now you've got thousands of temperature gauges in that room that can measure temperature and the subtleties in the temperature in like the corner of the room versus under the lamp. Um, you know, so so fiber allows us to really start to understand exactly what's happening along the wellbore, both when we are pumping hydraulic fracturing treatments, but also when we are flowing them back to the well from the reservoir and producing it. So, so we've seen some really strong advances in fiber. I think that's probably one of the more exciting things um, that help us understand. Um, we've also as an industry put a lot of money into big underground projects and very integrated underground projects. So whereas one company would have drilled their own wells and kept all their own data and maybe done a few diagnostics like fiber in a well, we're seeing these big, big, big projects that now have multiple companies, multiple um, academic institutions, the government, a lot of these are sponsored by the, the Department of Energy, um, to kind of spread the cost out, but get some really, really good information. And these projects might entail drilling 14 wells and, and taking extremely detailed information on all 14 which gets shared. So I, I think, you know, to answer your question, I, I think there's, I'd like to think there's always exciting things going on in these particular areas, but um, some more of the diagnostics, uh, some of these big field projects, those are some of the areas that we've seen really start to, um, really start to tell us about what's happening downhole. 
um, yeah, and yeah. You'd, yeah. you'd think oh, we'd I'm, understand, but we well, don't quite. <laughs> well, we can't so. see what we're doing, right? We can't see. Exactly. We only can take measurements and infer. So, so I'm happy that you shared about um, field laboratories, because that was one of the uh, features of my portfolio. We had 17 field laboratories in 19 sites public-private partnerships where government spent uh, 80% of the project uh, cost and then industry brought in 20% um, and then you know creative consortia collaborations with industry where they're able to really uh, come together uh, and, uh, and bring more money more insight more interpretation more understanding and more technology transfer of those technologies and I always say that is the best use of government funds, taxpayer dollars, to bring energy security, economic security, and national security as one of the roles of oil and gas production in the U.S. So I'm glad that you um, think that that's a, a wonderful thing. I did notice that the Department of Energy recently issued a request for information on the field laboratory concept in uh, carbon storage. Mm -hmm. So that's an application of uh, the subsurface skills that petroleum engineers have that it's unique to petroleum engineering, I would say, um, until these other industries, uh, geothermal and carbon storage, kind of develop their own industries. But, but this is a place that's going to happen, and these are the people who are going to do it. So thank you for your contributions. Uh, yeah, no, I, I um, absolutely, it's, it's amazing. It's both, the, um, both the need to be able to take petroleum engineering to some of these new areas, and, and it's kind of exciting to be able to do that, but also seeing some of the learnings that we've had at the hydrocarbon-based field locations, like you said, now being you know, taken over into areas of, of energy transition and, and some of these uh, other subsurface opportunities that we have. Yeah, yeah. So obviously hydraulic fracturing and you're the um, program chair for the hydraulic fracturing uh, conference in Denver in June. Tell us tell us something about the conference that's coming up. Yeah. Well, it's actually, so first of all, it, it's it's actually in the Woodlands, Texas, <laughs> not, not Denver. Oh um, my God, I have got Urtec on my brain and I can't yeah, let it go. <laughs> I am so sorry. That's okay. The Woodlands. <laughs> The woodlands. That's okay. It's it's okay. Um, I I live I live in the Denver area, so it's nice for me to go to the woodlands. Um, yeah. So Society of Petroleum Engineers has a um, uh, an annual conference now. When when it first started up, it was every other year, and this conference became so popular so quickly that it's it's been an annual conference for for quite some time now. Um, but it is one of the largest uh, specific topic conferences that uh, SPE has, Society of Petroleum Engineers has, um, that as the name implies, Hydraulic Fracturing uh, Conference and Exhibition is solely focused on the, the areas of hydraulic fracturing. Um, and so it's kind of uh, the premier conference in that particular area from a technology transfer standpoint. So who's who's who and what's what and why should we go? <laughs> wow, that's yeah, that's a that's a wide open. We could talk about that for a while. Um, well, first of all, the, the reason for people to go is it really is the the main technical opportunity for what's changed in hydraulic fracturing over the last year. 
uh, as far as as far as our industry. There's there's all sorts of conferences out there, and you know regional conferences and and other specifics. But this is the the largest domestic um, hydraulic fracturing conference in um, in the U.S. And uh, why to go? Well, a lot of it is seeing the paper publications and the presentations of some of the work that's gone on in the last year. Uh, also, there's a pretty large exhibition floor. Um, it's sold out for the it's sold out this year just like it has been for several years in the past. Um, it's, I think we've got 125, 126 exhibitors, um, not only on the exhibition floor, but we even have some uh, new equipment uh, that will be outside the actual uh, conference hall uh, just because we, <laughs> we can't fit it in there right now. Um, so, and, and the other one, uh, a great opportunity to network um, this really is the place, like I said, that uh, a lot of people come to, to share this information and, and you get a chance to meet some of the authors of the papers and talk with them. We have a couple of uh, networking luncheons and, and networking uh, evening opportunities. And um, yeah, it's, you know, like I said, it's, it's just a great place that if you have any interest in hydraulic fracturing or, or the completions and stimulation technology that goes along with it, um, this is a great place to, to come and come and meet your peeps, right? Absolutely. So, so equipment and then insights on new technology or new uh, understandings about unconventionals, uh, such that hydraulic fracturing would be a, um, a, a strategy or a solution. How about water? Mm -hmm. Produce water. Is that part of uh, one of the things that we talk about there? Yes, it is. Um, it, absolutely. So, so anything that goes along, you know, I, I say hydraulic fracturing, but it's 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 not just the the act of actually doing hydraulic fracturing. Um, water management is a big area. Uh, we definitely have some papers uh, with that. We definitely have some exhibitors um, in that particular area. Um, even even some of the extrapolation of hydraulic fracturing to other other uh, technologies. So we have several papers this year on uh, geothermal and um, the use of hydraulic fracturing in geothermal uh, areas and uh, the energy transition areas. We, we have a whole session um, on energy transition and the application of hydraulic fracturing uh, this year. So um, yeah, a lot of, I guess a lot of different reasons. I think, I think when you talk to some of the attendees, everybody kind of has different, different reasons for going. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's also kind of a fun conference just oh, in general. Oh, absolutely. So, so you yeah. can, you can um, sit in on papers in areas that you're a subject matter expert, expert and learn some new things, cutting edge things, perhaps new insights that um, especially PhD students are doing, right? They do really fun stuff. Um, but then also uh, get exposed to other areas outside of your area of expertise that are still aligned to, you know, what you do and, and your understandings. And so I love, I love that, that it's a specialty conference on um, hydraulic fracturing. Um, and I also um, am happy to provide some exposure. I hope uh, others want to provide some exposure in the sense of just helping everyone who's outside of the industry understand a little bit more about hydraulic fracturing and, um, 
you know, some of the some of the myths and misgivings about you know hydraulic fracturing that um, just aren't clear to people because we hear things in sound bites. So say a little bit something about the the safety of hydraulic fracturing, the control that we do have uh, about hydraulic fracturing. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, hydraulic fracturing has definitely gotten kind of a a bad knock over the years. Um, I think the first thing to to kind of clarify for a lot of people is this is something that the oil and gas industry has been doing for seventy five years. Um, the first intentional and documented hydraulic fracturing treatment actually took place in nineteen forty seven. Um, the c- first commercial ones were done in nineteen forty nine. So it's it's not something brand new. It's not something um, wild and cowboyish uh, um, that we've uh, that we've been doing. So it's you know it's I think the industry as a whole has been um, because we've been doing it for so long that when public concerns started to be really raised about it, uh, we maybe were caught a little off guard about that because we had done it for so long and, and done it safely for so long. Um, but one thing that I've observed over the last you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 years now is that due to the public's concern about it, uh, the industry has become much more transparent in, in how they approach it. Um, they want people to understand it. This is not something that we want hidden away or you know, that we're going to do under the the auspices of the night or, or anything like that. Um, it's it's much more um, open than perhaps it's it's been in the past. Things like if, if you're familiar with fracfocus.org, um, it's a website where people can go uh, open to the public and see what uh, fluids have been pumped down hole associated with different fracturing treatments. Um, going back to these diagnostics that I mentioned earlier, uh, we've developed diagnostics that help us understand exactly where the fracture's growing or, or what parts of the earth that it's growing into. Um, I will say that for somebody in my in my area that works in this area, it's not something that can be explained in 20 seconds. And, you know, we are kind of a, a sound bites uh world in this day and age. Uh, if you have concerns about it or if you are interested in it, I'd encourage you to take a little bit more time than just what the, the local news clip is, is showing on the, the, the 20 seconds um, to just delve into it a little bit more and understand that there there is a lot of technology and, and a lot of environmental and safety and, and health considerations that are put toward it um, to make sure that what's being done is safe. Absolutely, and it takes a lot of power, a lot of energy, a lot of um, horsepower to crack rock so deep in the earth. Uh, so it so it's not easy for fractures to get up to the surface. So I mean that's kind of like a myth and and a misconception uh, like that. Um, and um, the the reality is is that um, it was well. Let me start a little bit or a little bit further back. The Department of Energy was the first to invest big money into hydraulic fracturing, uh, big money into horizontal drilling separately. It was the industry who took it, took those technologies, put them together, and created what we call the shale revolution, if, if you will. But it was that ingenuity and that innovation and that uh, willingness to take that risk uh, in terms of financial risk is what I'm talking about. Um, 
to put those together to drill and it gave the United States uh, the market power that it had not had for decades and now it's that technology and that um, willingness to um, to make those contributions that are helping the world with its energy situations right now in terms of the gas and the LNG exports and the like. So I'm very proud of what we do and proud of you and what you do and uh, all the students that have come through your your school and your program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a, you know, it, it is interesting. It's when I first started my career and everybody was like, why are you going to do that? We, we hit peak oil and, and you're never going to have a career in it and, and everything. And our students these day and age hear the exact same thing, but it's, it's not. We, we need to, just from an energy production standpoint, from a, uh, a need to bring up the standard of living for a population worldwide that doesn't get to enjoy what we get to enjoy in the, in the U S a lot. Um, we need people to, uh, to to continue to apply and develop some of these new concepts that that you mentioned. It's that that's the thing is it, we t to develop these energy whether it's whether it's oil and gas or the energy transition, which uh, transition's not a switch, right? It's going to take a long time um, to be able to uh, to bring some of these other areas up to supply any any semblance of a of a percentage of our our energy needs, um, we we need students coming into this, and and we need to continue to to do some of these big application projects like like you're talking about. Um, interestingly enough, the plenary session for this year's FRAC conference is entitled "Learnings from World Class Underground Laboratories." And it's it's exactly what you're saying. It is saying, look at what we've learned from some of these really, really big dollar projects that one single company probably is never going to spend, but with the inner DOE's help, we can. And these are things that we now apply in our daily operations that came out of those, but also to get people thinking about what the next what the next one is, right, or, or how they can get involved in that. So, so it's kind of exciting. We're we're looking really looking forward to this particular plenary session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of the features that we started at the Department of Energy was to take the capabilities of the natural national laboratories to be able to use specialized equipment and expertise, probably gained in other arenas, and apply them to the oil and gas sector. And so we were looking at nanoscale phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so we called it pore to core to reservoir. Uh, you know, just to kind of put the whole thing together. But oh my gosh, the more we studied, the more we we did we realized we didn't know. And but at bottom line, you know, new um, new uh, emphasis on geochemistry that just a small little precipitation can like block a poor throat. They're so tiny and all of the above. So I'm well excited about what you're talking about that plenary session. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, we're pretty excited about it too. We've got uh, four different groups, four different companies that will be talking about their activities in this particular area. And with these four companies, um, we've actually got both technical people, but also management that they can say, you know, here's here's the technical outcomes that came about it, but here's how this changed our business for better. 
And, you know, I think ultimately, um, you, you know, that's, that's what we're looking for, right, is to how to, how to do things in a, in a cheaper, uh, more economically efficient, but safe, obvious, always safe, always environmentally sound, um, but ways to do it uh, that we, you know, improve the, improve the techniques and improve the production that we get out of some of these fields. So, um, yeah, kind of, kind of excited to see how that works out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Jennifer, we are almost out of time. Do you have any last things you want to share with our audience or maybe uh, the call for students? Uh, I mean, I'm just so proud of the work that you're doing, such an important contribution. (laughs) Yeah, you know, so uh, so putting my department head hat on, um, the call for students is a big one. Uh, We have seen a lot of people shift away from um, this industry because they they either don't think it's going to be around long enough for, for careers in it or they're concerned about, you know, the, the energy transition because, again, that's what they, they hear about on the news. Um, but would like to, you know, say that that's not the case. Um, uh, hiring is very good uh, right now and uh, for the foreseeable future, it's, it's actually a great time to get into the industry with the idea that that anybody that starts now is going to have a really good career in it and an opportunity to to probably develop some of the new technologies that we haven't even haven't even begun to think about yet so um it's kind of an exciting time um in in uh, petroleum engineering and so so yeah anybody that's uh listening to this right now you know whether wherever you are in your stage of the career um, you know, consider it. It's it's a it's a good good career, good people, um, good industry to to be part of. Great. And with that, we'll thank you for joining us today, Dr. Jennifer Miss Kimmins. Uh, we appreciate you sharing all your thoughts and interests about um, upstream oil and gas. And we thank you especially for your contributions to the oil and gas sector and all the great things and wonderful things your students are going to be doing and your graduates have done. And, and uh, we just thank you so much for being with us today. No, my pleasure. Again, thank you for having me. Great. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear more about on future podcasts. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.